the, the first two subjects that we had four weeks ago are critical issues that always come up in, in Jewish searching and Jewish development and progress. The issue of faith versus free will is something that we always confront, especially if we're ambitious people, and very often our successes and more so what we believe to be our failures always get us thinking about the seeming conflict that exists between the concept of faith and the concept of free will. The afternoon session as well, which deals with um, some revealing revelations about Jewish mysticism, I haven't yet had the opportunity of meeting some of the victims of Jewish mysticism. There are victims of Jewish mysticism because there's a lot of phony Jewish mysticism around, but where I come from in California, there's a lot, and um, I was prompted to develop um, an entire approach to Jewish mysticism because of it. And these are two issues which in, in life situations and in development, we, we move towards them. We want to know the answers to the seeming conflict between Satan versus free will. We want to know our place in Jewish mysticism, how we can develop within uh, um, mysticism, or it's commonly called Kabbalah, what are some of the authentic sources, where does it come from, and therefore I felt that um, though it, we're not necessarily already for mysticism, but the attitude towards Jewish mysticism would be something which would be very worthwhile to deal with. So let's get underway, and let's work with our outline about faith versus free will as this morning's topic. <coughs> Besides all the other suggestions which, I've made, which were made to us that we've acted upon, I've also constructed both lectures in a way that leaves open a lot more time for questions. Essentially, I've pinpointed certain central issues in both topics, and hopefully within an hour or so, maybe a little bit more than an hour, we will cover each lecture, leaving the rest of the time open for questions. Questions is a very unique way of learning, and uh, I wanted to, and this was based on suggestion, and it's a valid suggestion that there will be a lot more time open for questions at the end of the lectures. Faith versus free will. Are we really free to choose? <coughs> in, in, human, in human situations, the question of faith versus free will doesn't necessarily have to be a philosophical one, but is a very human question that many of us are prompted to ask. The two scenarios which are the most common scenarios in which we ask the question of faith versus free will are, number one, the situations in which we are determined to get something done, and we do everything in our power to do it, and if it's in the last moment, or in the last day, or in the last hour, everything turns around on us. And what we were determined to do doesn't happen. We made the decision, we went through the expense, we went through the time and energy, and then something just can't, we had a blowout on the highway, we missed the appointment, or things of that nature. And that gets us wondering if, if in fact, we are in control of our lives at all. Do we have free will? And if we do have free will, what is it worth if the whole thing can be checkmated on us 
at any point in time. So we wonder, are we just pawns in, in, in some divine plan and that we play as players believing that we're acting out and believing that we are exercising free will while we're really not? And there's some other plan that's moving us in certain directions. Equally frustrating sometimes is that w- precisely where we don't plan to do things, sometimes things turn over and happen for us. And it's almost as if somebody's roaring with laughter at us. What we try so hard to accomplish never gets done. And the things that we least think about, we turn around and they're there, they're in our lap. And it's almost as if, you know, somebody is mocking us. And we almost feel a sense of helplessness. And we begin to question, do we really have free will or is everything fake? Or the word in Yiddish, those of you that might have heard it, those of you that haven't should hear it, bashert. It was in the stars, it was meant, it's in the divine plan. What is that supposed to mean? That's one human situation that begs the question, even outside of being a philosopher. Just in life experience, there's a very human situation that we ask the question in. And then if we are somewhat involved in terms of spiritual progress or character modification or in any kind of spiritual development or form of progress, we come up against another phenomenon which I'd like to examine very closely today, and I think it bothers a lot of us. And that's the phenomena where we are trying to advance, either in character modification or in spiritual progress, whatever you want to call it, where there's a question of discipline, where there's a question of consistency, where there's a question of self-control, where the mind of man understands 100% the direction that they are supposed to be going. And nonetheless, nonetheless, when it comes down to the brass tacks, I go ahead and do something against my better judgment. And when I'm asked why, my refrain is, I couldn't help myself. And in human situations, that statement, I could not help myself, other than it being used as a get, you know, a way out, as an exit, is sometimes a very hurtful statement that people make. I know that I shouldn't have done it. I know that I shouldn't be involved. I know that this is something that's counterproductive to where I am or where I want to go. But when it came down to the, to, to do or not to do, I was not able to control my intellectual understanding my evaluation, my appreciation of something, and bring it to the proper end in terms of do or not do, whatever it might be. And I feel helpless. I can't help myself. I was forced to do it. Now, in the society that we live today, the, the, the refrain, I was forced to do it, or I can't help myself, or I was born that way, has come to be used as a way of legitimizing or exonerating all kinds of different behaviors. And I'm not going to get into, you know, that particular aspect of it, but I think that for most mature people wanting to develop, wanting to grow, the answer, I could not help myself, is more of a question and more of a frustration than is an excuse or a rationale for something that has happened or hasn't happened in our lives. I think it bothers us. And because of it, we are sometimes driven to the conclusion, I don't have free will. 
I was born this way, this is what I was, I got myself into, it's in my genes, it's hereditary, it's this, it's that. And out of the frustration of not knowing the answer to the seeming conflict of faith versus free will, where we meet up with what we believe to be a lack of control, we immediately come up with the conclusion, or we propose that conclusion, that I didn't have free will to begin with. Now what I'd like to go through today is, firstly, what is the centrality of the concept of free will? What is the centrality of the concept of faith? Let's deal with each one separately. What is free will? What's this concept? What is the concept of faith? Are they both authentic concepts in Judaism? And then, after we define each one separately, we will try to see how faith and free will are not necessarily in conflict, and that there is a blending between the two. Now, like many things in Jewish philosophy and Jewish thinking, similar to what we did the first seminar, there are certain character and personality traits that are barriers to some of the material that we're going to deal with. There are some emotional and psychological barriers to some of this material. Obviously, when you talk about a concept of faith, a concept that God is in control, God is involved, God has plans, and you can turn a somersault and what God wants to happen is going to happen, which is part of the concept of faith, is something that doesn't do our ego too much good. It's, you know, it's not something that's extremely comforting to us unless we are very big on loving God and, you know, like to hand over our lives to this, to this entity which we love called God. But most free, democratic, American, up, you know, marble country people don't go for concepts of God controlling parts of my life. So there are other barriers, emotional and psychological barriers that are involved as well. But let's go through each one, let's deal with it, and then in the questions and answers I think a lot more will come out. What is the centrality of the concept of free will? Judaism believes in the concept of free will without giving it a definition, a specific definition yet, as a, a cornerstone of Jewish, of Jewish philosophy. Essentially what free will says is that the human being has the ability for self-development through the creative choices that he can make. A person is set into a situation, he has choices to make, the choices very often demand a certain uh, system of priorities that the human being has to establish for themselves in terms of behaviors, in terms of what's important and what's not important, and the fact that the person is in a process of choosing and sometimes even fighting themselves in terms of what should be done at a given point in time, a human being can only do so much and only so much in a point of time, the person is going through a process, a decision-making process, which might involve emotional and psychological aspects of his being in the choices that he's making that he's presented with. And there is a creative quality in this because what happens is that certain potentials of who I am come out by the fact that I'm exercising choice and what I bring to bear upon the choices that I make. If, if it's education, if it's experience, if it's the counsel of others, there are many different things that come to play a role in how I choose. And bringing all of those components 
and mostly, of course, myself and my thinking and my feeling into making a choice is a very creative process. And because it's a creative process, there's development that comes through those choices and the challenge of those choices. If one would ask the question, why is it that God created man in a way that he constantly has to make choices? Why couldn't everything just be laid out on golden paved streets for man to pick up everything that's valuable? Why does he have to be confronted with choices and the like? Well, the, amongst many other Jewish philosophers, Lozado says very interestingly that the process of acting out of choice and the creative qualities that come out of choice is very much a God quality. It's a spiritual quality. There is nothing that God does that he's compelled to do. Everything is choice on God's part. And because everything is choice, the creation of the world, everything that God does with his world is, is a choice process on God's part. It's an independent kind of functioning on God's part. God wanting that man should be as close to him as possible gives man this creative ability of being like God. I choose. I have independence. I am going to give you a way of performing and behaving which makes, which creates for you also this process, this creative process. So this is a gift. In other words, in the, in the treasure house of gifts that God gives humanity, God says, I can give you everything, but I would also like to give you the ability to be creative, the ability to develop yourselves because that is also a part of supreme pleasure and supreme good that a human being can have. His own creative process, similar to God being a creator and having a creative process. <clears throat> Besides the aspect of development through challenge and the creative process that comes through choice and the fact that in a certain sense I possess a function similar to God's function in terms of moving ahead and making my choices as God makes his choices, aside of all of these factors, the free will system also becomes a foundation for the reward-punishment system. If a person is, in fact, in a free will system, so then there is a logic for reward, there is a logic for punishment. There is a logic for God's responding to what man does. If man is compelled to do right, or man is compelled to do negative behaviors, there cannot be any kind of a response that would be justified if man was compelled to act in a certain way. What do you want from me? You created me this way, be it good or bad. Whatever I did, I was compelled to do. And if I was compelled to do it, you don't deserve any kind of a response. What's the word? The, the word deserve doesn't fit into the vocabulary of a system where a person is compelled. For whatever reason, which we're not going to get into today, not, certainly not in today's uh, sessions, God wanted a world to develop in which there would be a development and a check system that would entail God responding to man. 
God responding to man requires a deserved system, a merit system. The merit system would require a free will system to make it justified. So this is, without getting into this issue very deeply, these are some of the very sensitive nerve centers that the concept of free will touches. The creativity of man, the development of man through choice, man's tremendous similarity in, in, creation, in creative ability to God, and the justification for a reward-punishment system. Were we, for a moment, to ditch the concept of free will, reward and punishment would become a fiasco to explain. The creative abilities of man would be almost totally denied because I would just be functioning as a compelled robot in life, and it would minimize the stature of what humanity is. So the, free, the concept of free will for itself touches many, many principal nerve centers in terms of the self-concept that the human being has and the relationship of God to man and man to God. This is on the free will part. How about the centrality of the faith concept? The concept that God is, knows, God is involved, God has things destined humanity and to the individual within, within the collective humanity. Why is that such a central concept? Why can't we, for argument's sake, not to, I'm not talking about proving, just for argument's sake, why can't we live, go through life not believing in the faith system, other than the experiences which I noted before which seem to be rather disturbing and to say that they're freaks. Well, we've got lots of freak accidents happening in our lives all the time. But other than it being illogical to assume that everything that happens that's outside of my choice is freak, other than that, there are also some very sensitive areas which are touched or covered by the concept of faith. What are they? So I have them listed in the part two of the outline. The concept of faith, and they're really all parts of one thing. So let me just say it in a, in a very brief way, and then you'll see how A, B, C, and D are all part of one thing. God definitely began with a concept of free will, development of man, creation, creativity of man, and then God's response in the constant development of man with reward and punishment. But if we think for a moment, were the world left just to a free will system, what could happen, we could paint the following picture. The world can go on for thousands, millions, maybe even billions of years, going in no specific direction of any one specific goal. Why? Because every person that's brought onto the scene has this opportunity of choice, makes the right choices, the wrong choices, the right for him, the wrong for him, whatever, however you want to put it. And we have our ups and our downs, and all of world history can become a seesaw without really going in any specific direction. If the reins of control and the reins of direction are left totally to the free will system, there is virtually no guarantee that we will get anywhere in this world. Like the rocking chair, back and forth, but really not going any place. So what's so terrible? 
We come into the world, we go back, we go forth, we have our ups and we get our downs, and then we become a memory in, to the people that knew us. So what's the terrible? What's the terrible? Why can't we live life that way? Well, that negates some very basic concepts of Judaism. If we talk about God as a creator of the world, so then we talk about purposeful creation. We talk about God having certain goals in creation. So here we have a picture of God creating a world with certain goals, and after creating a world with certain goals, God says, you're on your own. So then what? How does God ever guarantee the master plan of whatever that goal might be? Whatever it is. I'm not going to go into what it is. But assuming that God has some kind of a plan for humanity, and God says, I'm out of the driver's seat. I'm going into the back seat. I won't be a back seat driver. I won't tell you what to do. I won't force the wheel. I won't step on the gas. You do what you want. So the world could just go on and on and on aimlessly by the decisions that we've made. If we talk about God as a creator with a purposeful creation with specific goals that God had in mind, most of us have big goals in mind, especially if, our, if we had such a project as building a world, we most probably would have some goals in mind for such a major project. And then we give it over and we say, it's all, it's all in your hands. Do with it what you want. It's up to you. I can, I can suggest, but you're, you're the boss. You do it for the whole thing. And to answer that just by reward and punishment, God is going to straighten the whole thing out, well, well, let, let's look at our world. Is that an answer? It's not an answer. The fact that there is reward and punishment here or in the hereafter or wherever you want, I mean, it's a big question. We don't see where the world is going. And certainly a lot of where the directionless that appears to us the world has to it has a lot to do with the fact that everybody can do whatever they want within means, of course, of being caught. But that's essentially... That's, that's one area that it touches upon. <coughs> then, a second area in terms of faith, which really gets us into, the, into, into a whole discussion, is that we all know that we're different. Every single person is different. The Talmud says it very eloquently. The Talmud says that there are no two people ever here ever that were here, here now, or in the future will be here, that are identical. Everybody is in some way different. The Talmud says, it's very eloquently, the Talmud says, Okay, a little English. What it means is that the same way that two people, as similar as their face might look, there are some differences, even if they're slight, and there are no two people that are in their physical features identical. So the Talmud says, so too, in terms of their personality, their perspective, the way they look at things, is also different. Now, if everybody is different, and to have millions and billions of people, and there's no duplication. In millions and billions of people, there must be some form of faith that's involved in that. Why am I different? Why do I look slightly different than the next person? Why am I not identical to the next person? And again, to say that amongst millions and billions of created human beings, it's just freak. 
that no two people are the same. It's also difficult to say, to dismiss it as just a freak occurrence that no two people in all the millions and billions that come out are not the same seems to be very illogical. So if it's not, so then you're saying that there were, it was purposeful that people aren't identical. Saying that people are not identical is purposeful is a concept of faith. It is saying that I am what I am because I was destined to be in some way different by the way that I was born. So there you have right in front of you a, a concept of faith which, which uh, demands itself. So essentially, being that Jewish Judaism as a cornerstone of Jewish thinking, we talk about God as a purposeful creator with goals. We talk about the fate of different people in terms of establishing each person's life circumstances, life situations, life challenges. Everybody's is different. We're different people and our challenges are different. So we have this concept of fate. It's an adjustment factor. It makes us different. It makes our challenges different. It also has the ability of moving us in a direction of some goal. Now, here we come up with a very big question. If there is a goal, and if God would leave everything up to free will, the goal could never be guaranteed. So what do we introduce? We introduce the concept that God has involvement in his world. He knows. He's involved. He watches. He makes sure that every time we go a little bit off the trolley tracks, he tries to get us back onto the tracks. Sometimes that pushes us even further away. But we try to... Here we, all of a sudden, have to deal with a tremendous conflict. What's the conflict that we have to deal with? Oh, so at what point in time does God say, you can't do it the way you want to do it because I have a goal in mind? And isn't that a, a contradiction at that point with my free will? At whatever point, free will is deficient because the world just going on in free will will never get to its goal. So God says, today no free will, today it's me. Today it's what I want the world to go. So isn't on that day there a suspension of free will and then everything is working with faith? Can we live with both concepts together? The centrality of a goal orientation to the world, meaning that God has to be involved to guarantee something. And on the other hand, man being creative and having his choices before him, aren't those two concepts contradictions with each other? They're both necessary concepts, but on the day that I'm free, isn't it something which is contradictory to faith? On a day that God governs the world with faith, isn't it a contradiction to free will? So I haven't answered anything. All I've said is the centrality of the concept of free will, the centrality of the concept of faith. They're very big ideas, and they're more than ideas. They're very strong concepts within Judaism, cornerstones of our whole theology and our whole thinking in life. But aren't they in contradiction? <clears throat> so let's go on to three. Three and four. And let's try to unravel <clears throat> some of the material that's necessary in order to understand the free will concept and the faith concept. The best way to approach this is the way that I began. The way I began was, let's drop the philosophical issue and let's talk about the human situation first. 
the human situation where I'm determined to do something and it doesn't happen. I don't think about doing something and it happens. That's one, one situation. The second situation where I am determined because of the way I understand to do or not to do something and then when it comes down to the final act, I don't have control. And I come up with the conclusion that I'm not in control and the control wasn't, the freedom wasn't given to me. These are the two situations. And let's try to analyze them. I'd like to deal with the second one first because that's the one that hurts sometimes even more than the first. I'd like to deal with the second one first. Let's try to get into it a little bit and then we'll go to the faith part and see how we can blend them. <coughs> If I were to try to give a definition of an exercise in free will, I would give the following definition. A definition and then an explanation to, to make it clearer. I would give the following definition. Free will is an, ex an exercise in which the human being clearly sees before him the options of doing one way or doing the other way. He has a choice to make. Let's say it's a choice in behavior between going one way or going the other way. And he sees before him all of the aspects, all of the pros and all of the cons of that particular activity. It's clear. It's before him. He's not fooling himself. He's not fooling himself. If I could use a simplistic example, a person is not allowed to, let's say, eat food with salt. If he eats food with salt, he has an allergic reaction or his high blood pressure goes up or he gets chest pains or something like that. And, but he's wild for Lay's potato chips, right? let's say. Right? And he knows all of the facts. He knows that Lay's potato chips taste delicious. By the way, that's not... Uh, of approval from a rabbi on Lay's potato chips. Uh, he knows that they, they he knows that they they taste delicious. He enjoys them. You can't eat one. You know how all of that goes. And but on the other hand, he suffers almost instantly from high blood pressure or any of the maladies that um, too much salt might have. People that are sensitive to it, and even people that are not. And he stands over an unopened bag of Lay's potato chips and he's making one of those life decisions. Should I open the bag or not? And he knows that if he opens the bag, chances are if he takes one, he'll eat the bag and maybe even be tempted to open a second bag. And he goes through a process by which he suffers. He makes a decision that is as as terrific as Lay's potato chips are, it's not for him because it's not the worth, the pain, and the difficulty and health problems that will present themselves. <coughs> the, the health problems that will present themselves. And then, a day after, or two days after, he all of a sudden is hungry for a potato chip. So he makes the decision he'll eat one. And from one it becomes two, and from two it becomes a bag. And... He has his medical problems again with the bag of potato chips. He says, okay, today I fooled myself. I ate one. It landed up being the whole bag, just like the commercial said. 
tomorrow I'm not going to do it. The next day comes, he says, yesterday I fooled myself. Today I won't fool myself. I'll eat one and I'll only eat one. And he eats the whole bag. And this goes on for a while until it becomes ridiculous. And he throws up his arms and says, God, you put me on this earth with no free will about Lay's potato chips. <laughs> now, what's going on over here? Now, if we could analyze this a little bit, we would come up with a very interesting definition to what free will is all about. The person made a decision, an intellectual decision, if you want to call it that, not to eat those potato chips because he has heart failure, high blood pressure, indigestion, whatever it might be. He makes that decision. So that decision says that no matter how tasty potato chips are, it's not worth it for what he's suffering. So there are two, there are two things that he's dealing with the pleasure of potato chips, the displeasure of everything that comes after the potato chips. And he makes a decision that the displeasure and the medical ailments that come afterwards are definitely the heavier factor in this major decision that he has to make in life. And therefore, he makes a decision, listen, potato chips are wonderful, but life is more important. So therefore, I'm going to stay away from potato chips. So what is the weaker desire? eating potato chips. What is the stronger desire? Obviously, to stay alive. Or at least for that, that person didn't make a decision that I have to go on eating it because I just can't get rid of it. It's part of my life. He made the decision, I'm not going to eat it anymore. So in his mind, staying well was more important than the taste of potato chips. So then we come up with a big problem. A very simple problem, but a big problem. How is it that the weaker desire of enjoying the potato chips will then push him to constantly eat potato chips and the stronger desire to be well is not going to compel his behavior not to eat the potato chips. The weaker desire controls him, the stronger desire doesn't control him. The answer to this, uh, the answer to this is, is very simple. It has nothing to do with weaker desire controlling the person. What it has to do with is the ability for a person to or not to deceive themselves. When a person makes decisions and all of the materials in front of the person, a person has the ability to focus on certain aspects into the decision and to dis discount or to forget about certain aspects of, of, the, of the entire problem that requires a solution. The exercise of seeing the whole thing and making a decision or deciding that I'm going to try to shove under the carpet parts of the elements to the decision is my freedom. Obviously, after I've chosen to throw some of the material under the carpet and not focus on it in my decision-making process, obviously then I will move ahead, full speed ahead, and I'll gobble up the bag. But before I've done that, there is a point where I have the freedom. Will I deceive myself? Will I look at the whole thing? Will I make all of the factors bear down at once before I make my decision? Or will I try to dismiss it? Now, how do you dismiss it? You have all of these medical ailments. So you construct all kinds of interesting things. Only one. Only Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Only this. Only that. You try to minimize one of the aspects even though you know good and well that the minimization is not really going to work for you. 
But that's, and the, the willingness to deceive oneself or not, that's the exercise. That's the exercise of free will. Now, being that that's so, being that that's so, we come up from this silly example of potato chips, we come up with some very important, some very important concepts about what free will is. First of all, let's go back to the definition. Free will is a situation in which all of the facts are in front of me. I know all of them. They're very alive for me, and I'm making a choice. This would exclude if I only see one side of it. If I only see one side, I only see the aspects, the good aspects of potato chips. I don't see the negative aspects of potato chips. So do I have a reason not to eat potato chips? No. So I only see one side of it. I don't believe all of the reports about salt having anything to do with high blood pressure. Uh, it's not statistically proven. It's not clear. This, that, the other thing. And I only see one side of it. Then if I proceed to eat my potato chips, that has nothing to do with an exercise of free will. Because that wasn't an exercise of choice with all of the facts in front of oneself. I only see it one way. Now, let's take it out of the silly example of potato chips and let's take it into life situations. A person grows up in one social background, one kind of an environment, in which the thing to do is, let's say, to live by being a pickpocket. That's an upright profession. That's how you make your living. Right? And this is what his father did, this is what his grandfather did, this is what his great-grandfather did, and this is what he grows up to. And you take a course, where to do it, how to do it, with a sweater, without a sweater, in crowds, without crowds, you know, and then you get your B, B, you know, your master's and your PhD in pickpocketing. Now, it could very well be that that person, being that he was born into that kind of an environment, never knew anything else never knew anything else. Would you now say that that person doesn't have free will? Well, you might say that he was born into a lousy environment that made him do things which are very negative, but that is no contradiction to the concept of free will. The concept of free will says that in the situation where I have everything in front of me and I exercise the choice of seeing all of the points and making a truthful decision or a deceptive decision. That's the free will exercise. But where I don't see it all in front of me, that's not the way it works. <clears throat> what one could ask is why was the fate of this individual that he should be born into an environment where he only sees one side? That would be a question. But that's not a negation of free will. That it's just the whole situation doesn't exist. The circumstances are not there for a free will decision. Now, another aspect. So let's try to let's try to summarize this. Let's get this all put together. Let's try to summarize this. Free will then would be an exercise, an exercise in making a decision where all of the facts are in front of you. A good choice would then be, and this doesn't have to be a religious definition, a good choice is a truthful choice without deception, where I'm not deceiving myself. A bad choice 
is where I deceive myself about certain aspects in order to make the decision. The person that decides that he'll only eat one potato chip is deceiving himself and is making a bad choice. Now, spiritually, he might not have done anything wrong other than maybe not taking care of himself properly. <coughs> now, the second uh, factor, the second factor that has to be kept in mind is that every individual has a different battlefront in free will. In other words, every person has a different battlefront. One person is born into a situation where his conflict is, how much money should I give to, to help uh, the starving people in Africa? Another person can be born into the kind of a conflict, should I pickpocket with, the, with killing the person or without killing the person <laughs> if he catches me in the middle? I mean, every person is born into a different situation. Every person has, in the life situation, in his circumstances, a point in which they're struggling. There are certain things that I would never do. There are certain things that I wouldn't think twice about and definitely do. And then there are those areas that are the, what we call the gray areas. And those are the things that I struggle with. And that's where my exercise of free will plays itself out. Now, the important point in terms of this observation is not so much what it is that the person finally decides to do, but the correctness of the decision. Let me explain what I mean by that. You have one person that is deciding how many dollars should he give to starving people in Africa. Right? And he makes a decision that he's not going to give anything this year. A bad choice. You have another person that is making a decision, should he or should he not be a pickpocketer? Okay? So he makes a decision, this week I won't pickpocket. Right. So now, what human tendency is we put these two people up against each other and we say, well, the person that made the decision not to see the people in Africa is definitely a better person. Why is he a better person? Because even though he hasn't fed people, but he hasn't robbed people, and this person over here is never even thought about the, the possibility of, of giving other people money. He's just wrangling with how he should get money. But this is not right. This is not correct. The person that in his unique challenge makes the true decision is using the opportunity of life in the most positive way and is growing because of that decision while the person that might be making a more sophisticated kind of choice on a higher level but decides in the negative is going backwards, is going away from their particular challenge. So the question isn't who has the bigger challenge. The question is how well do I do at my particular challenge? So it's not, it's not correct to compare one person's challenge up against another person's. You have to measure each person's challenge within their own set of circumstances. How well did I do with my package, with my peckle? How well did I do with, with what was my challenge? Did I progress in my battlefront of choices? So then I've used, in this particular situation, I've used life meaningfully, and the other person hasn't, because the other person's made the negative choice. So it's not that you can't compare any one person to another person and say, he's still better even though he's inactive in his challenge. 
The critical point is how well am I doing at my challenge, not looking at the other person's challenge. The other point which is very central to this is that this situation of this free will business is an extremely fluid thing. What do I mean fluid? What I mean by fluid is that today I can be challenged. Should I choose this way? Shouldn't I choose this way? And then I make a decision. And I follow that decision for, let's say, a month, day in and day out for a month. By the time a month is over, I'm not choosing anymore. I've I've blazed the path of doing something one particular way. And now I go on to the next area. For instance, let's say the person that decides he's not going to be a pickpocket, and he keeps it up for a month. So then the next thing is he, now he works with another thing. Should I stop go, Should I try to find a job and get off welfare? So he moves up in that direction, and from there to the next, and to the next, and to the next. Or vice versa, if he decides, I'm going to pickpocket, and he does it for a month, he becomes hardened, and then he goes on to his next level of crime. So there's a constant up and down in terms of the choices that we make. And here we come to a very interesting point. When a person comes and says, I can't help myself, that statement, I can't help myself, has to be investigated very seriously. I can't help myself might be because I was born into the situation and I just can't break myself out of that environment or that social background or that way of thinking or I need a lot to do it and I'm not there yet or I can't help myself is because I made X amount of choices and concretized those choices by behavior to the point that now I can't help myself. When I made the choice, I was wrangling decision by constant, constant behavior. So then after a month of constant behavior, I say to myself, hmm, today I think I want to change, but I can't anymore. God's fool. He took away my free will from me. It's not true. Because at one point I had the choice to make, and then I solidified that choice by constant behavior, and today I find myself locked, trapped. But one has to ask themselves, did I bring myself to that point? If I brought myself to that point, even though today I might find it very hard to break away from that point, but it was a succession of choices and behaviors that created that impossible situation today. So these are some of the aspects that have to be kept in mind. Now, we're going to skip the E of part four for now. It's a very sophisticated concept, which we're going to leave out for the time being. But essentially, we're going, to, we're going to leave this free will issue now just by making a summation, and we're going to jump into the faith issue and why it is or isn't a contradiction with free will. Let's just make a summation. Free will is the exercise where the, where the aspects are all in front of me, and I'm exercising the choice of making truthful decisions with all of the elements in the, in the picture, or deceiving myself and excluding certain elements from the picture. Every person has a different battlefront of challenges depending upon what he accepts as absolutely fine or absolutely no good, and then the gray areas. Every person has a different gray area. The gray area that every person has in which he's making his choices is ever-changing depending upon the choice that he's made prior to this choice. So these are some of the facts. The knowledge of both pro and con, 
seeing them or deceiving oneself about them. My battlefront, an ever-changing battlefront, depending upon the choices that I make. And then obviously the areas to the right and to the left of never think of doing or never think of not doing, which I was born with because of environment or social background or education, which is not in any way an indication of free will or the absence of free will, but is an indication of some kind of a scheme of fate, which is now what we have to get into. <coughs> I'm going to start with a very shocking statement about state. A very shocking statement. And I would assume that a lot of you will reject it. And that's also all right. That's my fate. But I'm going to make a very shocking statement that the Talmud makes about state and then try to develop some appreciation for that statement. The statement is as follows. Hakel bidei shamayim chutz what does that mean? Everything about our lives is in the hands of God except our fear of heaven. That's the statement. Now, to put that in a more practical sense, let me refer to a madrashic source. There's a madrashic source, and I'll try to explain it. <coughs> the madrashic source says the following. At the moment of conception, there's a very beautiful madrash that talks about what happens at the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, a soul is designated for this unity that has been created that will eventually evolve into a human being. A soul is designated. And the Madras parenthetically goes into a very interesting discussion of how the soul that is designated for this created unit that is going to develop into a human being gets a journey, gets a tour of both Olam Haba, of the world to come, and also of the concepts of Gehenim, the concepts of spiritual punishment that might precede a person enjoying the rewards of Olam Haba. And in his journeys from heaven, and I hate to use the word hell, which is it's a wrong word, but the spiritual punishment, he is questioned about if he recognizes anybody there in heaven or, or in his place of spiritual punishment and he says he virtually doesn't recognize anybody and God tells the neshama that they sat next to you before they entered the world and they changed their lives once they got here for better or for worse they changed their lives but, and then this is all a pep talk make sure that you look like these and not like these when you finish this life okay that's parenthetical but in any case in that same marriage that describes all of these things very vividly the Madrash says that in concert with the designation of soul, God decides upon a person if he's going to be in the category of a tremendously wealthy person or a very poor person. If he's going to be a very intelligent person or a very foolish person. He's going to be tall or short, beautiful or ugly, and a whole host of things everything is decided at the point of conception in concert with the designation of his particular his or her particular soul the Talmud goes on and the Talmud says there is only one thing that is not decided Tzadik a Russia. will he be a righteous person 
or will he be a non-righteous person? That is the only thing that is not determined. Now, what do we do with this? This Medrash, by the way, is in exact parallel to the Talmud, which says everything is in the hands of heaven except the fear of heaven. In other words, the fear and the, the sense of doing that which is right. How do we understand this? How do we analyze this? Essentially, what the Talmud is saying is the following. The Talmud is saying <coughs> that the most critical factor in any person's life, in terms of the opportunity of life, the growth of life, the development of life, is not all of the things that God decides. Healthy or sick, wealthy or poor, tall or short, beautiful or ugly, those are all aspects which we sometimes focus on as the majors. But what the Talmud is saying, that's not the centrality of life opportunity. The centrality of life opportunity is what do we do with our unique circumstances. Each person is destined to have certain circumstances in their life which are predetermined. And because of those predetermined circumstances, there are unique challenges that that individual has because of those predetermined circumstances, because, particularly because of them. If I'm rich, I have, I have the challenges of what riches can do to a person. Greed, deceit, arrogance, dishonesty. If I'm a poor person, I could have a whole different set of challenges. I could have the above, but more likely I have the challenges, other kinds of challenges of not giving up, of not becoming depressed, of not becoming a non-believer. There could be a whole different list of challenges. Healthy and sick, a healthy person can be challenged to do things that a sick person just can't do. And a sick person can have the challenges of not becoming a monster in his sickness. Every person has a different set of challenges that very often is defined by the circumstances. So what the Talmud is saying is as follows. The Talmud is saying that really, really... The arena, the circumstances, the stage, the period of history, the environment, the background, that's all staged. God determines all of that. What we have to do is, within those set of circumstances, how well do we do? How well do we do in the choices that we have to make in those circumstances? Now, there are a number of questions which I'm going to leave open for discussion. There are a number of questions that come up with that. Uh, first of all, the question, how does God decide who gets what? Number two, if everything is predetermined, why don't we just sit home and wait for the money to come in? Because if it's going to come in, it'll come in because it was predetermined, and if it's not, it's not going to come even if I go out and get it. Right? It's, it's, that's all in faith, so let me sit home. Right? That's, that's a major area. But this is only one of the aspects that divides faith from free will. But let's make it clear. Faith takes care of the arena of circumstances. Free will is what I do within the predetermined arena. This would be our first answer. This would be our first answer. Unfortunately... <coughs> And it is the A of the, in the outline on part five. Let's go on to the second. The second B is really an offshoot of A, and that is that if we analyze this very carefully, 
And this doesn't work good in fast food societies. But let's make a spiritual statement here. Is it so important if in the last moment before I was deciding to do something virtuous, my tire blew out and I wasn't able to do it, is that is it's so important that it wasn't able to be done as the decision to do that virtuous thing. What do I mean? Let me explain. The fact that I go through the conflict, should I do this virtuous thing and spend my time, energy, resources, or should I be selfish today and only look at myself, and I bang it around for two, three hours, and then I say, no, I have to demand more of myself, and I'm going to go and do that virtuous thing. And I went through the conflict, I got into the car, and I, I canceled my appointment for my self-centered endeavor, and I got out on the highway, and there was uh, bumper to bumper traffic, and by the time I got there, the guy left, and I couldn't do it. Right? Now, the question that comes up is, was there any meaning in what happened to that person? And the answer is definitely. Because it's not as critical in terms of the development of the person if in the end it happened or not. The most critical aspect is, did I go through the, the decision-making process? Did I actually show that I was going to do it? Did I get into the car? Did I make the sacrifice? If in the end it happened or didn't happen, in terms of spiritual growth what I can say is the following I did what I was able to do and because I did what I was able to do in my arena of choice I grew the fact that God for some reason didn't want that I should do it finally or that that person should receive it that's God's business that's not mine but what was within my area of performance I did my best I did my optimum so I grow from it now, our normal way of thinking is final outcome. That's our orientation is. Did it happen or didn't it happen? And there is a certain amount of virtue because there are a lot of people that walk around with a lot of hope and a lot of things that they're going to do and they never do them because there really wasn't a decision to do them. I'm not talking about that. But in a situation where the person really goes through the conflict and the choice and makes the choice, that's the main thing. That's the part of human creativity and human development. And that's why it's very important to focus not on final outcome, but final choice. The fact that a person is ready to kick something because he's determined to do this and it didn't happen, one has to stand back and say, that comes from a part of you that wants to be in total control. And that's not necessarily the major issue. The major issue is doing your best in every situation. And if you're doing your best and you're making good, cho good choices in every situation, that's, that's all that's expected of you and that's all that's wanted of you. Past that is not your business. I mean, it says it so clearly all over. There's the contemplation to do, there's the decision to do, and finally getting it done. Contemplation and the decision to do is the area within human function. That's what he's responsible for, that's what he's going to answer for, and that's where he's going to grow. If it finally gets done or it doesn't get done, he has nothing to worry about. That's not his business. That, God has reasons. I don't know what those reasons are. That's where we employ the concept of faith. 
in the physical activity getting done or not getting done, that's where we say fate, because that's out of my control. But in making the decision, the tzaddik Russia, righteous or non-righteous, that's where I'm free to work, and that's what I have to concentrate on. <coughs> These are two of the answers. There's a third answer to the conflict between faith and free will, which is coordinating faith with inhuman choice. What does that mean? And this doesn't all, this isn't, a, it's one in many answers. What does this answer mean? This means that very often God will make faithful events happen sidestepping human choice, not in conflict with human choice. Let me give you some biblical examples of this. In the story of Ruth, for those of you that are familiar with the story of Ruth, Elimelech, a fabulously wealthy Jew who could have helped all of the Jews of Jerusalem in the time of famine, decides that he's going to opt out of his responsibility and go to the fields of Moab. A bad choice. His children intermarry, and the end of it is he loses all of his wealth, and his two sons die. But from that whole entire episode, Ruth is brought into, into the Jewish people. Now, did Elimelech make wrong choices? Definitely. And he suffered for them. But God, within the choice that man makes, gets his job done. We need the next link in the chain that will eventually bring King David and eventually Melech HaMashiach, the Messiah. I'll get my job done within the choices. Now, what would have been if Elimelech wouldn't have moved to the fields of Moab? God would have found it within some other choices that people made to get Ruth. So God sidestepping what man does gets his job done. Now this is something which obviously you have to be a tremendous master to be able to do and not to be in contradiction with choices that people make. Let me give you another example of this. Paro, the king of Egypt in the time that we were in Egypt, or according to some, all of the kings were named Paro, makes a decision, he sees in the stars, that there is going to, the Savior of the Jewish people is going to be born, unknown if he's Jewish or not, and he's going to be born in a certain period of time, so therefore all male children that are born are to be exterminated. Be they Jewish or non-Jewish doesn't make a difference. Right? Did God intervene and not let it happen? No. It went on, but when the right person came about, the Bible tells us the story of how Moses was put into hiding and the daughter of Paro finds this child, has pity on this child, and the savior of the Jewish people grows up under the nose of Paro. Again, Paro is not with, he's not bothered. Go ahead, do your choices, you'll suffer for it in the end. Make your choices, but I got a job to get done. The Jewish people have to leave. The, the orders of the steps of history have to move ahead regardless of the decisions that you've made. I'll get it done within what you're doing. So that, by the way, that is not a total answer, obviously, but this is one of the answers. And now, D, E, and S, I'd like to spend five, ten minutes on. It's a very complicated concept. <clears throat> there is yet one more answer, which I'd like to say briefly and then open up the question about faith versus free will. So far we have three answers to faith versus free will. 
Faith determines the circumstances, not behavior. That's one answer. It determines the circumstances within which we choose, but does not deal with the critical area of the choice within. And that is what man is challenged with. The final outcome is not as critical as the final choice, a second answer. And coordinating fate within the choices that human beings make. These are three of the possible answers. There is a fourth. And the fourth one runs the following gamut. <coughs> there are different forms of learning. There is a form of learning which requires which requires response on God's part. A person does something correct, God responds with a correct response. A person does something negative, God responds in a way that indicates his displeasure with the negative thing. This is the reward punish free will, reward punishment system that we speak of. But as I pointed out at the very beginning, the world could go on and on and on indefinitely if that would be the single system that would work. There is a second system which works, which is the faith system, which occasionally works within the selections of man, how man selects. But then there is another way that it works. And let me explain it in the following way. I'm going to use an example that might be a little bit um, hard to take, but I think it's a good example. Science has been notorious for being most probably one of the major opponents of a belief in God. It doesn't have to be, by the way. There is no real contradiction between science and religion, which I'm not going to go into right now. But science has classically been a major opponent to religion. Everything's explained by natural events, except the clauses in insurance contracts which talk about acts of God. <laughs> and other than that, okay, other than that, science has been a major opponent of the belief in God and God's control, God as a creator, God as a sustainer. <clears throat> and man has been very stubborn about taking his technology, taking his advances, which are phenomenal and wonderful, and using them as a contradiction or in conflict with a belief in God. Now, sometimes the only way for a person to learn when they are extremely stiff-necked or stubborn is to let the decision that the person made run its course. Go ahead. Let it go ahead, do what you want to do, and you'll see it'll run its course. Now, in the case of science and technology, I think it's ran its course, so not everybody has picked up the message yet. Because science and technology have advanced so tremendously over the years, not together with any kind of a concept of God, today we stand in a situation where to a lesser or greater degree we feel threatened that we will destroy ourselves if only by a mere accident. Now, if science and technology would advance together with concepts of God, 
which would mean emulation of God characteristics and so on and so forth. All of the elements that make so much of science and technology a powerful tool, a powerful weapon, would, would only be used in ways that would be productive for mankind. The arrogance, the selfishness, the haughtiness, all of the different elements that can exist in an absence of a man-God relationship now exist with all of the tremendous powers of nature and technology unleashed and unbridled by any kind of value or concept. So today, if we look at what's gone on and we're honest to ourselves about it, what we're being taught is a very interesting lesson. God lets the rope. Gives us rope. Go ahead. You want to produce technology, you want to make your advancements, you want it, fine. But if it doesn't advance simultaneously with concepts of God and concepts of human development, the end will be that you'll destroy yourself with it. Or at least you'll ruin the, the security and peace that you have in life, even if it'll never happen that you'll destroy yourself. That is intended to become a learning tool for man that, to, that man should step back and rethink what he's done. Now, when God does things of that nature, God is almost receding from a reward-punishment kind of a situation. He's moving back and he's saying, listen, I want to punish you scientists because you just made a major discovery and I helped you with it and all you're doing is getting written up in the papers and you're denying me more than you did before. I want to really punish you. And God says, no, 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 no. That, that's not going to work. It won't work. Man is too stubborn. Man is too enthralled by science and technology to, 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 to learn that lesson. Let them learn, let them reap so to speak, the benefits of their own actions in this way. We have another example of this, which is a little bit, uh, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily in place to talk about, but the spread of diseases today that, um, you know, everybody's arguing or everybody would like to argue that they're not directly related to certain kinds of lifestyles, right? I mean, if it wouldn't be that those lifestyles would be there, nobody would deny the fact that they're directly related. But being that they touch us, those lifestyles, or we want to legitimize them, or people want to legitimize them, it can steer us in the face that a lifestyle is destroying us, and then we'll come up with some kind of crazy theory, well, it's affecting this person anyway, so it's not related. I mean, there are certain situations in terms of learning that unless God lets them play themselves out, we don't learn. And for God to intercede along the way and say, don't do this, don't do this, I won't let you do this, doesn't necessarily always work. Sometimes God has to step back, let it play itself out, and then hopefully man can dismiss it at that point also, but sometimes it becomes too glaring, it becomes too staring oneself in the face. Accidents in science and technology of the proportions that from time to time we've suffered, challenge of seven, and things of that nature. I'm not saying that that's why they happened, but those kinds of accidents where everything is computerized and everything is exact, and then the stupidity of things not locking to each other, or that day it was freezing, or this or that, shows us the, the aspect of where there's, after everything is said and done, a human factor which has weakness to it. 
and that as predictable as we want to be in science and technology, there are still other forces that govern. I come from California. In California, if you ever experience an earthquake, right, scientists are not scientists. You have to think for a moment that somebody else is in control. But in any case, getting back over here, when we talk about faith, ver faith versus free will, there are situations which we live with which are not necessarily reward-punishment pun situations, but they are faith situations. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that God does not work with his world in a way of reward and punishment, instant response, or relatively instant response, but God, so to speak, stands back and says, listen, you're stubborn, you don't want to learn the right way, go ahead, do it your way, and let it play itself out. Now, it's very, it could happen that people live in those times where God says that the only way is for me to recede, let you make your choices, I should have intervened long ago, and I should have stopped this, and you deserve that I should have stopped it long ago by the choices that you made, but I'm not going to do it that way because you won't learn that way, because of the mindset that you've given yourself. So I'll step back. And this has a lot to do, especially in our times today, where we live in the times before what we call the times of Mashiach, where God, so to speak, says the free will system and the reward-punishment system, which is the, the primary system by which God works, God says sometimes, obviously in the end, it'll all get straightened out. But God says it's not necessarily a primary conduct because the world's not getting where it has to go. I'm going to stand back and I'm going to let a situation play itself out. And there will be people that will be in those faithful situations, even though they don't necessarily deserve those situations. And the justification of that, we spoke about a little bit, a little bit in the first seminar, how a person can sometimes have to live through a difficult situation, not because he necessarily deserves it, but to the ultimate benefit of the world and the spiritual growth and reward that he receives as an individual being put into this process, even though as an individual he wasn't worthy of it happening to them. This is something which we discussed in the, first, in the first seminar. But there is a concept of time being um, permeated with, with a sense of fate, where God is saying the goal has to come about, the normal ways of going are not going, so I'm going to stand back. And there are certain things that are going to happen which the person says to himself, I don't deserve this, it's happening to me, it's a faithful act that's happening to me, but that concept of the faithful act is also, it's goal-oriented, and it is measured out in a way that it becomes justified to the people that have to live through it. It's a very difficult concept. If you want to deal with it at greater length, I, I intend at a, at a future seminar to spend a whole lecture on this. But if you want to do some reading on it in The Knowing Heart by Lozado, the last, the last uh, 60, 70 pages of the book deal with this concept. Okay, I'm finished, or at least with this part of it, and I'll, I'll take questions. <coughs> Does anybody have the time? I very faithfully left, left my watch home. 11.30. Neil, you're keeping uh, track of the time. No, in terms of... Okay. Yes. 
Okay, I'm going to give you a very, uh, very unorthodox answer to that question. I'm going to tell you that the person that's born to be a pickpocket and is obviously challenged by the next level in the profession, if he makes the choice not to, to go into the next level of the profession because he feels that it's not right or something of that nature, he's a tzaddik. He's a tzaddik. In other words, when God looks at that person who is struggling at his particular level in the battlefront, he's a tzaddik. He has done an act of righteousness, which is the one area that is expected of him at this moment in time. See, we think of big plans, the, 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 you know, the big saint. A person is a tzaddik in each action that is done correctly, within his control.
and makes a quality decision. What we talked about as being a non-deceptive decision, a truthful decision, and feels that they have conquered it and are not challenged by it anymore. They have it under their belt. They either look back at the time that they were struggling with it and they can't understand why they were struggling with it. That's usually an indication that they're ready for the next. And what usually happens is that as soon as I make peace with one conflict, uh, I hate to sound so disappointing, but I usually use some new conflict comes up. <laughs> yes. Um, it's been said that in World War II, the uh, uh, Nazis at some point in their atrocities were very kind and generous to their pets. Were they committing an act of righteousness within the level of their understand in the sense that they were making a choice for do this, but uh, today I'm going to do this. Uh, I'd like to hear some people's responses to that question first. I sometimes do this because it usually brings to bear some interesting points. The question was, um, I don't know if it's documented or not, but though Germans committed tremendous atrocities against humanity, they were very good to their pets. To their pets. Pets. To animals. How does one understand that? How does one understand that? Right. Let's hear some comment on that. Yes. You have to further analyze. This animal, don't forget they use animals for the process of killing people too. I mean, well, no. Because you are a professional animal. No. Then it's denying the, 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 the word 
of the, of the human life. I see it as totally, because they're off to begin with, they may refer to the kind of animal. I see it as well. point that's worth pondering. You know, there are acts, there are activities, and then there's the guts that's behind the activities. And um, there, there's a lot to think about in terms of people doing righteous acts without necessarily being their, their acts or being, you know, or having that kind of uh, the guts that's behind what a righteous act is all about. I mean, that's definitely worthwhile to keep in mind. Yeah. I want to make, what about a heart attack? A burning building, and you say you have the choice of saving a child or the soul. What choice? I'm saying in the sense of you, this is a baby question. When you say uh, good to animals, I say good to animals because we have preconceived values. It's a human being and it's an animal. But take something that you believe in. Take too good. Well, as, well, you understand what I'm trying to say? When the choice is between two goods, and one is human, and one is your concept, uh, that, I think, is a more uh, legitimate question. Yeah, the answer to that question, by the way, is that life comes first. Um, but the truth of the matter is that if you think about it, if you think about it, the, the, the question, the original question, um, it's something which is that's worth discussing in a much greater in a in a larger format. But you know what you come up against here. What you come up against over here is that man has tre- makes tremendous attempts at being good, uh, being good, all of social ethics, being good, um, and eventually the. A person has to be confronted with all kinds of situations which are tainted and touched and misguided and mischanneled in terms of being good. And that's why it's so critical in Jewish, in Jewish thinking, the concept of being good is something that's defined by God. It's not something that's defined by my particular feeling or mood today. You know, when you want to know the answer to an ethical issue, there's a law for it. So sometimes uh, a person can say, well, it's a human situation and you have to do it the way you feel is right to do. How, does it, how is it apropos even to discuss law involved in it? And this goes into a very, very deep discussion about what is the definition of good? What establishes something as being good? Is it the feeling that the person has that it's good? Is it developed through experience? Is it developed through associations that we made? Are there absolute good, absolute truth? It's a very, very involved area. And you get into the, um, this is an extreme example of it, but you can get into that kind of a scenario of being the epitome of cruelty and then pet an animal 
when your system of good is a system that is designed that in a way that it's not free from human subjectivity and your, your own personal interest. The cat's not a threat to my life. This particular person I believe is a threat. So the cat I give cat through the person I rub out. In other words, it, it's an indication of the, the human inability because of his frailty and his subjectivity to be able to really be the source of the definition of good onto his, for himself. That's what it points to, and that's, I think, the most significant part of it. I mean, they say a story, Reputner, Zechariah Lebrecha, who was one of my teachers, says a story that he was in Germany, and he came up, um, a Jew once came to him and was praising the Germans. This was before the entire uh, situation in World War II. He was praising the Germans' etiquette and their manners and everything else. And Rav Huttner, who was then a very young scholar, found it very objectionable. He found it very objectionable. And he said that he saw how much evil was cooking inside of Germany and he really gave it to this guy because the guy was pointing out this, you know, this, this nice feature. In any case, they left in disagreement. In other words, this person was saying, well, you have to look at the good and, you know, it's wonderful and so on and so forth. They do something wrong, it's wrong. So you have to look at the good. Reflutner tells the story that after the, world, after the Second World War and after he became established with a whole school and a whole college, that one day a person walked into his office with one arm off and said, I came to admit to you that you were right and I was wrong. They took off my arm with lots of manners. They did it with etiquette. So, all right, let's get back to the subject. The Holocaust is something that has so many different areas. Let's get back to the subject in terms of the material. Nobody wants to know why we have to work today, why we can't just stay home. Yeah. So maybe we should all stay home. Okay. Uh, you have concept of afterlife, the world of reward, Olam Haba, that, that's that entire concept. The soul lives on in the rewards of what it grew by its it, choices. It does not come back and, and no. do another body decision. Okay, then I'm trying to understand, if the person is decided in our time, they're all good. Their souls have been complete. I'm trying to get the connection between the soul has been Oh, okay. The fact that a person is a tzaddik, which means he makes right decisions, the truthful choices, doesn't necessarily mean that he's completed all of the choices that he has to make. Every day presents different choices. So at any given point in time, he could be making right choices, and he's, he's running a good track record with God, but he hasn't yet completed all of the